Hey everybody, welcome to Twig 61. In this week's episode, we will be covering the following news articles. First, why D7 ROAS may be the worst KPI to optimize towards since CPI, which is from Nebo Radovich's Medium page. Actually, Nebo, did I pronounce your last name right? <laughs> yeah, you did, you did. Okay. I kind of I can changed it to Radovic because it's easier <laughs> to pronounce. I changed everything, my name, my last name. Yeah. So the second article is what comes next after Facebook's video campaign strategy by Mobile Dev Memo. The third article is mobile game developers are buying into rivals instead of selling out by Business World. The fourth is the Game Awards 2019, the 12 biggest announcements by The Verge. And finally, the Xbox Series X is basically a PC by, again, The Verge. On the podcast today, we have myself, Joe Kim, Eric Kress, and Adam Telfer. In addition, we are joined by a very special guest, the Nebo from Network, arguably one of the best in the business at UA and certainly one of the most influential. Hey, Nebo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of what you do and the constructor of fun. Great. And for those who don't know you, could you do a quick intro about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm currently a network uh, as part of the UA platform. Uh, I used to run uh, marketing and network for two and a half years, pretty much until a month ago. Before that, I used to do user acquisition and machine zone and Nordius. Some of you know Top 11 better than the name of the company, but one of the first big mobile web developers uh, back in 2012, 2013. Right. And just moving on to updates... So for those of you out there who are actually interested in marketing user acquisition, coincidentally, Nebo, John Lau from DraftKings, and I started a YouTube segment on the Game Makers YouTube channel called UA Coffee Talk. So please check that out. And I actually just finished Let's Go Pikachu this morning. And not sure if you guys are playing uh, <laughs> still or what, what game wait, wait. are you guys <laughs> Let's Go Pikachu? What? Yeah. What are, what are you talking about? Why did you even finish it? Why I, did you I, even mention it? <laughs> I, I gave up on Fallen Order, and uh, that was lying around. You know, yeah. one of the twenty yeah. games I haven't played. <laughs> I have to. I have to say, I have. I have. I, have, I may have given up on Fallen Order. I might pick it up again over the holiday, but uh, not looking good for me. Oh, I finished it. I actually finished it last week. Good for you. Yeah, uh, and the last boss is actually very, very good. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Anybody yeah. happen to be playing uh, Black Desert Online? on mobile at all that game is just beautiful it's like it's almost too much but uh i mean i don't think it's going to do all that well but we'll see but it's cool any other updates oh i got one update on scopely so um so basically they were mentioned as or no mentioned they were awarded deal makers of the year by variety basically representing the only video game company on the list huge honor now what I realized at that point was I've been a little bit negligent in terms of my characterization uh, and assessment of Scopely as a whole. You know, I gave lots of props to Walter for his charisma and his deal-making skills and how handsome he is. But you know what? I absolutely totally forgot about Javier. You know, Javier is like Antonio Banderas alongside Tom Cruise, man. Those two cannot be resisted, you know? And so, so I, I'm apologizing to Javier, who deserves credit to being maybe the second most handsome person in video games. And although, <laughs> if I were picking between the two, Walter wins hands down for the most <laughs> handsome executive in video games. So congratulations on the accolades. 
and the honor from Variety Magazine for Best Deal Makers of the Year. You guys are truly a force to be reckoned with. So that's my quick update on Scopely. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I guess uh, given that, maybe we should go ahead and kick it off with the first article, which is why D7 RAS may be the worst KPI to optimize towards since CPI. And so in Nebo's Medium post, he talks about why a lot of performance marketers today use D7 ROAS as a key metric to optimize against. And by optimize against, we mean adjusting the UA budgets against. And he talks about what the limitations are of just using D7 ROAS as that key metric. But long story short, some of the issues are that there are different monetization curves and therefore different expected ROAS target goals based on different channels, platforms, and geos, for example. Further, it's not to say that marketers shouldn't use D7 ROAS, but that just as a single metric and without getting fuller context that mistakes can happen. So anyway, to get into this further, we thought it'd be great to ask the man himself, Nebo from Network, who is here with us as mentioned in the intro. So I thought we could start just by Nebo having you talk to us a little bit more about the context behind why you wrote the post and some more details behind the limitations behind using D7 ROAS as that sort of God metric for UA budgeting. Yeah, sure. Uh, Again, thanks guys for the invite. I'm really glad that the article resonated so well with a lot of UA people and you guys as well. Uh, And if you ignore the clickbaity headline, what it's really about, it's, it's basically explaining that UA teams should never use a single metric to optimize towards. Uh, and the reason why, it's because UA is changing. And uh, you covered a lot of UA articles in the past that are talking about like ROAS-based bidding and how, you know, um, it's getting easier to do UA. But at the same time, you know, the kind of monetization side of things is changing because the UA, the UA part is changing as well. And what I tried to explain how ROAS-based bidding algorithms impact uh, monetization curves and why using a single metric is very dangerous because your early metrics, especially in the case of Facebook VO and Google PRS, look really good. They're really good at filtering users, driving a lot of payers early in the game and making all your metrics look really good. But those users also get bombarded by tons of ads and they churn much much sooner. And as a result, your pay retention is lower or long-term pay retention is lower. So the article is really about, it's a call uh, for all the UA people to look beyond just D7 ROS. There's a lot of reasons why it's a popular metric. It's easy to understand. It's easy to communicate uh, to the management and as well as peers on the team. But at the same time, I believe that that kind of the future UA managers should understand both sides of the coin, uh, both the monetization and, and the UA side and understand how each one of these things impact the, uh, the monetization, the payback window. Right, and so in terms of your recommendation or some of the other things that marketers should be looking at instead of D7 ROAS, could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, of course, I mean, the best thing uh, a, mar- a UA team could do is have, you know, work closely with a data science team and figure out the predictive LTV models to understand which campaigns, uh, which channels are gonna pay back sooner. The thing with like predictive, smart predictive models is that they take into account not just for us, they take into account session length, pay retention, overall retention, um, where the players are coming from, uh, which platform are they playing on. So all these different things impact the LTV curve differently. So if you have a really good data science team that wants to work closely with the marketing team, that's great. And then you can, you can spend more aggressively 
knowing that you know you understand better how the LTV curve is going to look like and when the money is going to pay back. If that's not the case, if you are uh, working for a small company uh, that has just like a handful of people or one data scientist for both the game team and the UA team, then the recommendation is to, to figure out different targets for different channels and different platforms and different geos. It is a little more manual, but at least it ensures that you are spending the money in the best possible way, given the set of tools and resources you have. That's like a TLDR uh, explanation <laughs> of the, uh, the conclusion. Adam and Eric, do you guys have any additional questions here? Uh, it sounds like the main issue isn't necessarily D7 ROAS, but actually more around the multiplier that happens afterwards, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because just like imagine if it, what happened with Facebook VO and, and Google, uh, Google TROS is they're really good at converting users to payers because they know who, who are the, the payers in games. Uh, you, you know, we're uploading lookalikes. Google has Google Play data as well. And they're, they're just sending more of the payers to your game. And as a result, you know, uh, your early numbers look really good. So if you apply the same multiple uh, to Facebook VO as you're applying to like rewarded video, which is a significantly cheaper channel to acquire users from, it just, you know, it won't come up. You won't get the same result. And the, what, what's likely going to happen is that your expected payback window is significantly shorter than what the actual is going to be. So that's why uh, this requires uh, a slightly deeper understanding of what the LTV curves look like and, and how different optimization models impact the, uh, the LTV curve. Cool. All right. Well, we will definitely include a link to your Medium post as well as the Game Maker's you know, YouTube video where we talk about this in more depth. And also just for our audience, please do ping us whether you'd like to see us bring some of that content here on the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I know some in our audience will sort of freak out sometimes when we post sort of non-PM, non-game news design related stuff. But, uh, you know. Who, who does that? <laughs> like like you, <laughs> UA is so, so that, much of a part of being there, a PM, there was, right? There, like, there was that review. <laughs> I don't know, I, um, but, you know, generally speaking for us, we feel that there's going to be competitive advantage by knowing more about this convergence around PM and design and UA. So anyway, please let us know. And moving on to our next article, which is also uh, user acquisition and marketing focused. And this one is titled, What Comes Next After Facebook's VO Campaign Strategy by Mobile Dev Memo. And just to summarize this article, VO, for our audience out there who is not familiar with UA, stands for value optimization, is basically a type of advertising campaign strategy that Facebook supports, where the the people you advertise to are targeted based on their value, which generally means the amount of LTV or spend And this is generally speaking the most highly performant and also the most expensive type of campaign strategy out there. In his article, Eric Seufert first talks about how with VO, the way you control costs is actually different. It's basically highest value or min ROAS, return on ad spend, where highest value means you pay whatever it takes to get the users with the highest defined value. And min ROAS means you want to establish a minimum sort of threshold for return on the user after one or seven days. And the second point Eric makes is to take the user on a history of Google UAC, which is short for universal app campaigns and basically Google's ad targeting system. And 
The difference here is that a lot of the functionality and levers that marketers used to have control of got sucked into the platform with UAC. And with UAC, marketers just provide parts or components of ad creatives, which Google then uses to dynamically create ads. And that generally performed a lot better because of all the machine learning technology behind it. But the other part that you have to believe is that Google is working in a sort of benevolent way to provide as much performance as possible, but you're sort of trusting that they are doing the right thing and not just giving you a little bit of performance over your target ROAS goal that you had specified. So Eric then posits that Facebook will likely move in a similar direction and will take automated creative variation, automated value targeting, automated budget targeting, and long story short, similar to Google UAC, will have their system suck up a lot more levers and fun functionality into the platform. So the user benefit here is that there's a lot less for a marketer to do and should allow sort of less sophisticated marketers or, or smaller players to perform as well as the bigger guys. But the problem also is that there will be less transparency or no transparency. You won't be able to tell if Facebook actually gives you the best performance you can actually get, or are they just delivering, you know, a hair over what your min ROAS settings are? So, Nebo, I guess the question I have for you is, did I characterize that correctly? And then what is your take and sort of the UA community's thinking and take on this stuff? Yeah, this is a great article. What Eric is really good at is outlining trends and explaining really well, like, what's the impact of those on the UA industry and this one uh, such article. I think there's a few more things that are important to outline here. Okay. Um, it's MinRust doesn't really work in the way uh, advertisers want it to work. Basically, you with Facebook products, you always bid, or not always, but in most a lot of cases, you bid significantly higher than what you can actually pay because you're trying to boost delivery and to get more, you know, more impressions. So th I think that's one of the problems of MinRust. It's like you you want to hit on a day seven of five percent. But in a lot of cases, you're going to bid 1% or like 0.1% or whatever is the lowest possible bid because you're trying to boost delivery. And what, what happened with VO, it turned into like a pay-to-win strategy where like whoever has more money wins more, uh, more impressions or is able to acquire more payers. So I think that's one of the problems of VO. Uh, and that's one of the biggest changes in the industry that happened in the last year, which is there are ways now, very simple ways to acquire payers in your game. But at the same time, they're very expensive, which means that these particular uh, strategies are available only to guys with deep pockets. Or if you're, a, uh, if you're a game that converts really well, if you're a new type of content that converts significantly better than, than uh, existing advertisers' games, uh, then you might be lucky and for a short period of time be able to kind of compete with everybody else into, in, in that auction. So who do you think this will actually benefit in the long run then? It sounds like the deepest pockets and maybe even like hyper-casual players? Hyper-casual guys, I think part of the reason why hyper-casual became big is that hyper-casual guys don't really care about VO at all because they don't monetize uh, via IP. They monetize using ads, right? And because of VO and Rust-based bidding algorithms, uh, CPMs went up significantly. Like Facebook CPMs are really high. Google CPMs are really high because they, they didn't know how to find really good users. And as a result, you can now have ad-supported games and you can you know, have uh, drive millions of installs 
and do it profitably by paying the money back in like three or four days, but just by just showing the ads. So I don't think this actually impacts uh, impacts uh, uh, hyper casual guys. Impacts people like impacts developers like uh, you know uh, network or machine zone or any mid core to hardcore games that monetize exclusively uh, with IP. So I think I think the future here is really to make this uh, auction a little more fair and to to make it available for uh, advertisers to reach to every single user with every single optimization model versus having one model which goes only after pairs and creating this like bloodshed where whoever has more money wins. However, what's, what's, what's true about this article is that Facebook is trying to make things even simpler. Uh, and it's, it's trying to mimic UAC in that sense because they're trying to make their long tail longer. Uh, and all these changes that they were making uh, to the platform are actually uh, doing that. I think there's a few more things that I wanted to bring up. It's like Google UAC was not a very successful product for a long time. Uh, and it took, a, it took a while to Google to get to this stage where they are now arguably performing better than Facebook for a lot of developers. And it's still not that successful on, on iOS. So I'm not, I think Facebook will probably take only those bits that are working, which is a simple interface, a simple way to create campaigns. And potentially they'll create one auction or they'll create one uh, campaign type that works across all placements because Facebook now has a messenger and Facebook audience network and Facebook first party products. So they'll probably you know, do something in that regard, but I don't think it's ever going to become as same, the same as UAC because there are some things uh, about the Facebook platform that are very successful. And to some degree though, Google kind of has an advantage because they have the Play Store data, right? That's true, but Facebook has clicks, which is one of the sneakiest way to get uh, other developers' uh, revenue data. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Facebook SDK and there's Facebook login. So if you're using Facebook SDK, then you're passing like a, a revenue data in real time, which is why Facebook is more successful in iOS than Google. And if you are uh, using Facebook login to, to collect like uh, user information, then you're also sending their uh, revenue, like spending and, and, and engagement behavior data, Facebook. So they're, they're really good at figuring out who to advertise to. The problem with VO in particular is that it, they know who the payers are. They know who are, who are the biggest payers out there. You know, we're talking about whales who spend dozens of thousands of dollars in games. And they just created a simple auction for everyone to go after those. And it's very expensive right now. You know, like if, in the U.S., if you want to drive an install, like if you want to go use VO in the U.S. for like a mid-core hardcore game, you have to pay $50 to $100 for an install. And, you know, that's just too risky at this point, you know, because you don't really know whether the user is going to stay in the game for that long to monetize that much. That's why I wrote this paranoid article um, about, you know, why D7 ROS is, should not be the target and how people have to, and why people have to understand these things at a much deeper level in order not to take their company to bankruptcy. Right, and it, what about the question of trust in potentially having, you know, the, the sand guys manage your performance <laughs> to maximize their own profit? Like, do you think that's a concern that, marketers should be concerned about? My bold statement is that you, user acquisition as we know it is, uh, uh, is done or like it's, it's gonna change significantly in the next year or so. So Facebook mm -hmm. and Google are gonna make things simpler, but at the same time, it's gonna just get more competitive and people with more money will have to 
will be able to win this game and other, other developers will have to look for alternative strategies. And speaking of Scopely, Eric, um, I know you like, love Scopely. Um, I think what Scopely really did well is they figured out how to leverage IP to lower the cost. Um, I, I think in the future, there's going to be a lot of companies that will look for alternative ways. Either they'll be, able better, they'll be better at finding themes that convert users really well, or they'll, they'll, they'll build social models in the game that, that help you know, with K-Factor and just like help games grow organically. And I'll stop here because I can talk about this for a while. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, what, one last question for you, Nibel. So, you know, given the power and strength of what Facebook and Google are doing, and it seems like they're getting more and more share of the mobile advertising pie, do you think that continues? And how far can that go? Right now, I think Eric Eric Sufer shared a, shared a graph a few days ago that Facebook and Google are something like seventy or eighty percent of all the mobile ad spend. I think that's already too much um, uh, because you know we that means that your UA UA mix is not diversified and that you're like you're putting too many eggs in like two two baskets and and that's already risky because what the result of that is the cost is going up. And if your games don't monetize uh, consistently, as, or if your game just stops monetizing because you did something in the game that's not good, that means you're going to run out of money pretty fast. Uh, so it's just like, it's very risky to, to rely only on those two guys, especially if you do user acquisition at scale. So I, I, think, there, I think that in, 2020, in 2020, there's going to be a huge opportunity for one of the other ad networks like TikTok or Snapchat or Twitter to become really big and become a, a healthy third option. Wait a minute, hold on. Okay, now at least this is kind of talking my language a little bit because up to this point, any question I would have asked, I would have sound like a moron. But um, <laughs> so wait a minute. So is it is it these baskets is just like Google and Facebook because they're the most efficient and the best networks to advertise on, or you know, yeah, yeah. Are, 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 are Snap and Twitter and all these other ones like actual alter alternatives or are they just trashy, you know, UA stuff, right? Like, are they as, as effective? I mean, if, if it's because if, it's, if we're getting down to Google and Facebook because they're the most effective, then that doesn't mean yeah, that someone else is going to come along. Yeah, they've yeah. got how, access to data no one else has, so they're how, always yeah. going to have them. Yeah, how can Snapchat come back and like be competitive with Facebook when they don't even have someone's birth date, you know? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the number one thing that Snapchat has to fix are ad units. Their ad units don't convert as well. Um, and and you know, they already build things like lookalikes to get user information to try to understand who's spending money and who's not spending money. I think also like time works in in Snapchat's favor because their audience is going to get a little older. Their, the average household income is going to go up. It's the same thing that happened to Facebook like 10 years ago. When Facebook introduced their, their advertising, things were not working as well, but they figured it out over time. It's really up to the management, whether like, they have a good management to be able to execute that. Uh, the, the, what happened with Google and Facebook is they swallowed a lot of smaller networks. They were uh, great options for game, for game makers. You know, rewarded video was huge for Machine Zone, for example, and now rewarded video is nowhere close to where it used to be because uh, Google and Facebook became huge players in this, um, in this space. They are simply able to target users better. And as a result, they're paying uh, a higher, C higher CPMs. 
Yeah, no, no. Sorry. Let me just rephrase. I I totally understand. And I think you and I are saying the same thing, but your your statement was more like, well, we'll see one of these other uh, operators, you know, come up and compete against Google and Facebook, but I don't see how that's even possible given the... Uh, I think there is an opportunity, uh, but it's highly unlikely it's going to happen. Okay. All right. So are yeah, you, are you agree? Yeah. Uh, I, I just can't imagine Snapchat coming, you know, back to life. I mean... I don't. It's it's an interesting story with those guys, but I think they, you know, these type of thing tools lose their allure after a while. They move on to other things. Yeah, TikTok. you should uh, you should think about it as in in different terms. I'm, I invested in Snapchat. I made like a decent amount of money from uh, Snapchat investments because yeah. it's a it's a video first uh, social network. Video is a premium uh, premium kind of ad unit any any video ad is is kind of premium uh, uh, again ad unit piece of ad uh, they have 300 million DAU or like they have a ridiculous number of users yeah um, if Facebook bought snapchat they would make tons of money off of that inventory so it, it's it's something that's very valuable the question is whether they'll be able to extract that value out of out of what they have so that's why I think snapchat has something unique and they just don't really know how to how to leverage their inventory, and it's probably because they don't have their data is not good enough. Right. Well, they don't have the targeting, right? I mean, that's the fundamental problem. I mean, like I, I remember. I guess why I, 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 there's a little bad taste in my mouth. I met with one yeah. of the Snap Biz Dev guys. Like you know, it was like literally like three or four months, maybe six months before they went public, and yeah. I was just kind of asking. It was like a meet and greet thing, and I was asking them like, so exactly how much information do you collect on your on your user base so that you can, you know, have targeted advertising. Actually, it wasn't even, sorry, let me step back. The question was this, how are you going to make money? Right. That was really the question I asked him. And then he said, well, we're going to do advertising. And then I asked him the question. So how much actual information do you collect in your user base? He's all none. <laughs> I'm like, well, how are you going to build an ad network out of stuff that you can't target? You know, like, and so, I mean, I think they've stepped up that sort of thing and I'm not really covering Snap all that closely, but yeah, it just seems like they just can't possibly compete at the same level as Facebook or Google ever, right? It's just not yeah. that kind of tool, right? Yeah, that's true. I think they need to improve targeting in uh, ad units or the, the ad formats they offer. They're just not converting users well enough. Right. And that's part of the reason why uh, performance advertisers are not leveraging Snapchat as much as they do Google and Facebook. I just want a short snap. I mean, is that is that is that so wrong? I just uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a social media thing. You know, everybody wants to short snap. It's like shorting Uber, but you know, there are people yeah. who who are, who love people like you and they make money off of that. So and that's true. That's true. That's why I'm not shorting it because I don't know yeah. enough about it to be honest. Yeah. All right, moving on. Yeah, uh -huh. let's move on. So let's talk about Playricks. Um, so the the article that. Uh, Joe, you gave me was mobile game developers are buying into rivals instead of selling out by business world. To be honest, this wasn't a great article. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we can we can talk about Playrix. I think Playrix is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let, let's let's go on a deeper dive on Playrix specifically. Um, like the news this week was that they acquired uh, IPix E I P I X Entertainment. Yeah, they're from Serbia, actually. Yeah, from Serbia. Um, there was no reported price. Um, however, unlikely very large, uh, just because at least from looking at things like App Annie, uh, they don't have any significant revenue. Um, so this is actually more likely just kind of a talent acquisition and kind of bringing in support studios for Playrix. Um, 
iPix was kind of a small scale casual developer from Serbia, developer of various yeah. match three and hidden object games. Do you know more, Nebo? Yeah, so they were, uh, they're known for uh, hidden object games. Uh, I think uh, they were developed some of the biggest uh, games they were uh, published, released on the Big Fish platform. Um, they're also doing all kinds of interesting things like uh, they, they have like PC and VR stuff, but like they have PC VR. They they publish comic books, um, uh, but it's definitely a small studio. Um, <laughs> I'm just and, watching Eric laugh in the background. Sorry. Come yeah, on, yeah. <laughs> you're trying to put lipstick on a pig, dude. This thing is just a small little rinky. It's a small. Group. It's a small. Yeah, I, I know them well. I know Mirko the CEO really well. And oops, um, uh, and you know they, they're a small studio with really with great artists. Um, Serbian gaming scene is booming. I think it's an interesting uh, um, kind of expansion in that sense. And, um, and you know, it's, it, I, I think players are just trying to kind of find talent anywhere they can. And given the proximity, uh, like Serbia's proximity to Russia, I think that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess going into the actual strategy of like why they pick up the studio, right? Because um, uh, this article, at least what it talks about is an interview with the Playrix Play brothers uh, who own Playrix. Um, over the past year, they've spent more than hundred million on acquisitions and are planning to more than quadruple their current portfolio of titles um, from four uh, to about 16 hits. Um, so actually looking into their acquisition strategy, and if you comp that towards like Zynga, which we've covered a lot on this podcast, uh, it's actually a very, very different direction. Um, instead of Zynga, who's a, you know, acquires guys like small giants who are kind of very proven revenue and then kind of growing them by live ops. Uh, you have Playrix who are buying studios, I would say much more on like a fire sale and then kind of integrating them into their core competencies of match three and hidden object live operations. Um, supporting their live teams with additional resources. Because uh, if you look at the types of companies that they've been acquiring, like IPix, Zagrava, Visor, uh, Zephyr, Nexters, like it's unlikely the lessons listeners here have, have heard them. Um, and many of them are like outsourcing company for casual games or just kind of struggling casual game developers. Um, because Playrix is going for, say, acquiring these studios just for talent and then leveling them up. And you can see it from the quote from this article of, uh, from the brothers that they're they're taking a much longer term approach. Um, we are helping our portfolio of games or companies grow over focusing of, on acquiring revenue directly. Um, so uh, in order to actually do this, acquiring all these companies so that they can eventually create new titles over the next couple of years to actually push their sales with the goal of actually rivaling Activision as their overall ambition. Um, so if you think about this acquisition strategy, you think about the current state of, of Playrix, can they actually compete with something like Activision? Um, I, I say that's pretty overly ambitious. Um, like my, my current read on Playrix, um, of course, like I, I'm huge fans of the company. They've done some amazing things over the last uh, really couple of decades, right? Like they've been around in the casual space for a long, long time, same type of timeline as King. Um, but I see Playrix now kind of at the same point that King was near the, acquis near the acquisition by Activision um, because you know, like match three and hidden object games uh, typically actually scale pretty well. Like sequels and sister games tend to do really well and allow a company to actually stack revenue without kind of eating into their base. King had Candy Crush. Um, they had Farm Farm what is it, Farm Hero Saga. They had uh, Pet Rescue. They had all these different types of games all stacking on top. And while no sequel surpassed kind of Candy Crush, 
Um, they've all been kind of successful business units on their own. Um, so Playrix really was no different. So like if you look at their transition from Fishdom to Cardenscapes to Homescapes, each have been kind of continually new hits for Playrix. Um, definitely not to mention Township uh, continuing to chug alongside those games. But if you look at kind of King's trajectory, their scaling engine eventually slowed down after Jelly and Soda, um, actually eventually forcing them um, to today where they're really investing really only in Candy Crush, uh, either in live ops or spinoffs. And it's not to knock King. They had a lot of talented people constantly soft launching new ideas, but it's hard to build success in the shadow of a game like Candy Crush. And I see Playrix is likely at the same point, um, especially looking at the RPIs of their recent soft launches. Uh, so if you look at Wildscapes, which uh, very innovatively <laughs> is Gardenscapes with a zoo, um, is about a 30 cent RPI from three months from launch. And Manor Matters, which is, I think, which is their hidden object game, uh, is roughly about 60 cents. Um, you comp that to Gardenscapes of 1.6, and homescapes of $2.3. Uh, so these games are significantly underperforming versus those games. My takeaway is that the formula of like X scapes, gardenscapes, homescapes, um, is diminishing pretty quickly. The value of this model, similar to when King kind of struggled um, to continually adapt after that saga um, model kind of diminished. Playrix will struggle to adapt, especially if they're bogged down by trying to teach some of these struggling acquisition studios. Uh, they should focus these acquisitions on actually producing content for these existing games so they can actually free up some of those central resources and talent to build the next big thing. That's my take. Uh, JK? Yeah, so for me, I I think that Playrix is in a bit of a unique situation and I'm also a fan, so I, I don't mean to be critical in any way, but if I'm being honest, I don't quite buy the narrative that's being put forth by the article, which is that the brothers are sort of, you know, choosing as their ideal strategy to kind of become one of the biggest players and compete with Activision, you know, the word on the street, it's been pretty, you know, uh, well rumored that they've been, you know, up for sale for, for quite a while, but, you know, a, a lot of the concerns about them has just been, you know, geography, um, so being in Russia, that they're extremely distributed. And so because of the geo issues and, and also the price, like that there's, there's been kind of a lot of, um, you know, uh, controversy in terms, well, not controversy, but, uh, you know, kind of disagreements in terms of what the, uh, what the sale price would be. So I, I kind of agree with your take, Adam, that they're kind of, they're kind of reaching this, this point of scale where, where things are, you know, they're, re they're re reaching diminishing returns. Um, and so, like having to go this path where they're going after these lower cost studios, you know, my own feeling is that, you know, they've done an incredible job uh, that, uh, you know, they've, um, that they will continue to grow to some degree, but I just don't quite think they're going to hit sort of, you know, Activision levels uh, with the current uh, trajectory and with, with the current strategy. Eric? Yeah. I mean, I, I, been looking at this company for a while because I was just kind of looking at the sequel uh, success that they had with their um, puzzle games. And this is the same kind of thing is that uh, there seems to be some kind of insatiable desire or demand for puzzle games, which still continues to blow my mind, which I've said many times. But the company's been remarkable. It's grown from like 300 million all the way to up to the almost 2 billion in, in this year. So according to Sensor Tower anyway. 
But I mean, we are seeing a slowdown of growth, I suppose, but it's kind of the law of large numbers, right? It's hard to grow when you're sitting at $2 billion, right? Um, but you know, at this point, it is almost too big to acquire, right? For many of uh, parties that would be interested. So, you know, even something, you know, someone like Zynga just could not, you know, get this thing done because if they are sitting at 2 billion, probably a little bit more than 2 billion, any multiple on that revenue would get you to a five, six, seven billion dollar deal, right? And that's just a lot of uh, a lot of ducats, right? And and again, you said earlier, like the country risk and and their concentration on titles, so very you know is is all risky and it creates a challenging deal. And it's possible that one of the big China companies did. We saw Plarium being acquired by Aristocrat recently, and they have a similar issue in which. A lot of their operations are in Ukraine, I suppose. And um, so, you know, Aust Aristocrat's just a, a, what, Australian company that does traditional casino games and also has been acquiring some stuff like the big fish guys. But anyway, so I just don't see any of the publicly traded companies in the US getting interested in this because the boards and the shareholders are just not going to be comfortable with the company that's completely distributed uh, employees in places like Russia, right? Um, and there also could be some logistical challenges of doing that as well. So what do they do? I don't know. I mean, this is a tough one, right? So, you know, they could treat it like a piggy bank, right? Kind of, you know, this is kind of like war gaming, right? Where those guys are just basically minting money and, and cashing checks, right? And to a lesser degree, social points similarly, um, much to a smaller degree. Um, and so they basically just continue to build it and continue to make money, I suppose. But I think it's gonna be tough to get an acquisition done. Uh, and, and I don't see an obvious acquirer at this point, um, unless some of the Chinese guys would be interested, but ugh, they don't do very well outside of the West, as far as I can see. So that's all I got on that one. Anything else? Um, yeah, probably the other thing too, is just as we've mentioned before on the podcast that the list of acquisition targets is getting smaller and smaller. So, um, you know. Well, at least they can actually acquire a lot of these smaller studios right like with, with zynga it's better like when they're trying to buy revenue it seems like that well has definitely dried up but yeah. if they can successfully integrate these teams which i think is definitely possible if they're building up you know semi-successful match three hidden object developers and integrating them into just building out content for these massive games you know that that model can work i think there's a with, with small giant games Zynga acquire like a 50 person team with players, you would acquire six, seven, eight hundred people that yeah. work all over the place. It's really hard to integrate such a big team. Um, my point on the on this is uh, players. I love players games. Um, uh, great production value, uh, beautiful games, uh, and I think they're going to do just fine if they stay on their own. These games generally have super long lifetime. They tend to monetize really well. Um, uh, and I think they'll do fine. I mean, they're if they cannot get acquired, they should look into uh, you know ways to grow. And I think this is an interesting way to do so. Um, but you know, mobile gaming is challenging. We'll see. We'll see how successful this kind of yeah. yeah. At the end I, of the day, Ed, we're talking about like the number three publisher on mobile here, right? Like, no, I know. We, we we could knock them on their acquisition and their their ambition here, but these guys have done a lot of amazing work. I know, but you kind of want these guys to just cash out big and become, I mean, I mean, they probably are, you know, hundreds of millionaires, you know, but make a few billion. That'd be nice, right? Well, I mean, I think they're each worth 1.6 billion. Get out. Holy uh, shit. 
Yeah, they're they're making. I mean, the cost of operations is not that high because they have people all over the place. It's not like a San Francisco-based startup. So I think, and and there's like only there's you cannot spend a billion dollars on each game on advertising that easily. So you know <laughs> you, you can only spend so much in UA. So they're definitely you know banking some money. Um, you know, an, an interesting company. Um, for sure. Uh, also, I'll play Wildscapes. Wildscapes is nowhere as good as Homescapes and Gardenscapes. No, it's a I... different, different retention mechanic, and I think that's what, that's why the the game failed. I still think that I still think there's a law of threes, man. I think you could do two of these games, and then number three is always going to be, or maybe it's because number three you try to do something different or something. Like, like I agree with you on that. I play these games like Crack Addicts. I, I, I wasn't a big fan of puzzle games until this thing came out. So, um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, more power to them. I mean, they're, they're killing it. So enjoy. Well, one last note. So one of the companies we've been talking about um, in the last few podcasts, well, we'll be announcing in the next couple of weeks. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Rumor Guy. Holy <laughs> All yeah, right, dude. Moving on. I, I think Wildscapes failed just because they didn't put Austin, the bald dude, on the main icon. That's it. Oh, is that it? That's it. <laughs> Anyways, keep going. Keep going. All right. So the next thing we're going to go through this really as fast as possible. So the Game Awards 2019 with 12, 12 big announcements. This is a story from I don't even know where. It doesn't matter. So every year uh, the Game Awards uh, go uh, in in the holiday time frame, and re- really it's the only place to announce things or the future of games in this in this kind of time frame. You know, we have GDC, E3, GamesCon and games award show those are the big kind of beats over the year for uh you know publishing you know console pc etc uh the tokyo game show used to be relevant but not anymore since uh, japan's console business has been struggling for years so i'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the awards one because i think a lot of these award shows are pretty lame and pretty crappy but um i mean all I have to do is say Sekiro won best game of the year and everyone's going to go, what the fuck is Sekiro, <laughs> right? I mean, no one cares, right? Really? <laughs> I on. played it. I played it. Of course All I right. did. But no one cares. <laughs> um, so, But what's cool about it, though, is it ultimately is a showcase of new titles and things to come. And I think that is actually more interesting. Um, so I'm going to run through these as quick as possible with a little bit of commentary. But uh, the first thing they announced that was the biggest thing was the uh, the actual physical manifestation of Microsoft xbox series x and we're going to talk about that in the next story so i won't go too much into it now uh hellblade was announced which is a sequel from ninja theory pretty core niche game bravely default is an rpg from square enix coming to switch yawn um playstation 5 announced the first third party exclusive which is really interesting Uh, i'm not quite sure why they're doing exclusives at this point but let's i'm sure they got paid for this what's really weird about this is being published by Gearbox, which is not, uh, you know, the uh, 300-pound gorilla or whatever the expression is of publishing. I, I would imagine that another publisher would have been better, like Sony. Um, uh, and then Blue Hole, the guys who do PUBG, announced this prologue thing, which we don't know anything about from the trailer. Uh, Riot unveiled their first uh, <laughs> game from their third publishing arm, which I'm laughing a little bit. Uh, Ruin King, which... You know, games that are based on League of Legends universe from third parties. You know, good luck on that one, fellas. Um, and then Ghost of Tarishma was a PS4 exclusive. 
I don't know anything about that one. That's, uh, and then the, the one that dry, keeps driving me insane is this Final Fantasy VII <laughs> remake. Will you just release this stupid thing? I mean, this is another trailer for a game that must have been developed. So I think so. For a quick history on this, the original game was made for PlayStation original in 1997. And many considered to be the best Final Fantasy ever made. And I'm not debating that at all. What I'm saying is they've been talking about this fucking remaster since 2000, you know? And it was rumored to be developed in the 2000s. And then it was uh, and then it was on PS2 or something, and then it got canned. And then there's speculation since 2000 that was back again. The fanboys have been all over this. There's always rumors and speculation around that. But evidently, the real development really didn't start till 2014. And they seem to be postponing and delaying this constantly, right? So we're, and we're talking about a freaking remake. Just release this thing and be done with it. I'm just sick of hearing about it. But anyway. But, but, but you know the, the worst part about this? The game that comes out in March is part one. Oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> right, I forgot about that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really so it's great. just Final Fantasy VII Part One. So. All right, so I'm never going to hear the end it's of this never crap. Gonna end. Yeah. All right. Anyway, all right. Uh, the next thing was Sounds of Cyberpunk. I mean, I thought it's cool that Cyberpunk actually gets kind of some kind of nod because that's probably going to be one of the biggest games uh, next year. So that was cool. Um, Gears Tactics, a strategy spinoff from Gears of War. Good luck with that one. Um, and then the new develop, development team for Telltale announced Wolf Among Us 2, which is interesting that they're going to be able to get something to show this soon, because it seems really soon. But um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Or maybe that was in development beforehand. I'm not really Yeah, sure. it was. Yeah, oh, we, is that right? We talked okay. about that. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and then Fast and Furious Crossroads from Sightly. Look, everyone out there that's kind of trying to get compete in the console space, stop making racing games. Okay, racing is dead. You can look at MPD. You can look at all the data in Europe, and you're going to see the same thing that everyone else sees, is that racing is not what it used to be. Need for Speed commands like three or four million at most every time it comes out. Um, and Fast and Furious, throwing a license on that's not going to change things. So, so overall, as you probably can hear from my demeanor, this show kind of sucked, right? There wasn't these epic announcements that there are at this show, right? Last year, we saw Super Smash. We saw a really cool uh, kind of, re not a reveal, but like a launch trailer for Mortal Kombat. Far Cry, Rage 2, the year before was like Death Stranding, Bayonetta, Zelda, Breath of the Wild. Like there, there, this has been a showcase from some, some big, big titles, but perhaps it's because of the timing we're in right now, like where the new cycle starts next year. So they didn't really have a lot to show of the new games because they're kind of waiting till they get it fully baked. They may be restricted in terms of what they can release from Microsoft and Sony, et cetera. But so next year, I'm hoping there'll be a lot more show showcasing uh, next-gen hardware, software, and, and, and the like. But uh, a little bit disappointing this year. Um, and, but, you know, well, let's hope for next year. Because uh, I think next year is going to be very exciting for the space in general. Any other thoughts, guys? Mm, not much. I agree with you. It was pretty light. Uh, one question that was like, why Microsoft chose this venue to launch their console versus like launching it on their own terms on their own stage well i mean i think they're just trying to beat sony to the punch right i mean they're gonna have to share the stage at e3 and as i said this is the only really venue to announce anything before gdc, like GDC and gdc yeah. is not the right place really yeah. i mean i know it's a game developers conference and it kind of makes logical sense but like it's not a big venue for releasing big announcements it's possible that they do that but i, I think They'll probably hold off until E3. So it gets them out early. 
Yeah. Um, I wonder how many viewers they really get for this. I don't think the show gets reviews, but I think the press coverage probably makes up for it. Yeah. I would think, yeah. but I'm not, a, I'm not, I haven't done this kind of PR marketing work for a while. So I'd have to ask someone about that. Um, yeah. Anything else? Not really. I think the only thing I was pissed at was Super Smash didn't announce their last DLC character. <laughs> I was really hoping for that. Yeah, uh, I think I think from my side, I, I am one of those fanboys super excited about the Final Fantasy VII remake. I should have guessed. So, <laughs> that'll definitely be my number one purchase priority for next year. Uh, but beyond that, I, I'm just kind of disappointed at the disappearance of old school rpg type of games and co-op rpgs like the ones that you know bioware used to make so it seems like it's all shooters narrative action puzzle type of games which i don't object to but definitely feel like there's a hole in the market so that that's, that's which games point. which games from bioware like, like dragon, dragon age? age uh yeah or the old like um you know kind of even going back to like pc like never winter uh oh, baldur's gate like back way back when no but then they had after that they had even like games like jade empire oh, and, okay okay you know knights of the old mm. republic and um you know even like marvel ultimate alliance like those co-op rpg type games yeah, like yeah. Those type but is it the co-op aspect that you liked because no, like i, I like i don't both. know like outer worlds like outer worlds is a really good one for this year you should definitely check that one out yeah i'm gonna uh, actually i was gonna uh, that's what i'm gonna do this holiday i'm just gonna play outer worlds like i i, I want to mm-hmm. get through i love that kind of game that's like my thing um mm-hmm. but I, i'm gonna give that a shot i don't think it's co-op though but I, i'm no. not sure like nice of the world republic and this type of thing like the original that wasn't co-op yeah, yeah no no I, those are i consider those two different genres but both of those types of games it, it feels like have kind of disappeared I think a lot of stuff went to like, in terms of co-op, went towards like looter shooters and MMOE yeah. type of stuff. And yeah. then in terms of like old school RPGs, you've got Skyrim, Fallout, big content treadmills, Witcher, Cyberpunk now. Yeah, I mean, Cyberpunk will be the, yeah, that, yeah, that's the manifestation of, of what you're talking about, I think, over time, right? Yeah. Uh, all right, so the next thing is about uh, Xbox Series X. Uh, so... Basically, the article is about it's basically a PC, <laughs> which is totally true. Um, I, I thought it was cool that they used this as a, as a showcase for the first details around the design. Um, and for the first time, uh, the, game, the thing is going to be made as a tower, specifically. I think you could have used it as a tower historically, but this one is like freaking tower, right? It looks exactly like a PC. Um, and the IGN guys were funny. They were like, the design cues makes it look like it's taller and stronger you know one analogy is like a skyscraper like you know the salesforce penis in san francisco which my mom continually hates every time she sees that thing in the middle of our city um anyway hopefully it goes down in earthquake or something so uh <laughs> jesus <Eric. laughs> big one but, yes so the big change is really the ability to obviously put it as a tower and but i think they the people like kind of like it overall it seems like the design is should be more a little bit more divisive but i think it'll be fine and then the overall volume of the thing is actually similar to the existing consoles it's just in a more of a square shape so you can lay it flat or go have it up so and then the only other real kind of like design cue that they saw was that the new controller has um the pro d-pad and a quote-unquote share button which i didn't really go into because i'm not all that interested um but anyway the innards 4K, 60 frames per second, some Zen 2 and RDNA architecture from AMD. Um, they are going to leverage you know, ray tracing in that. Uh, and 
of basically solid state storage systems. So I may be wrong on this one because I always thought they were going to do a hybrid, but they basically are claiming it's going to be full solid state. Uh, they're going to offer, quote unquote, four times the CPU performance of the Xbox One and 2x the graphics power of the Xbox One X. So, you know, and then they give us this meaningless performance metric of 12 teraflops, which I think it's like the size of everyone's penis or something and they announced teraflops <laughs> but um so basically this is a pc under your tv to put it simply and when all is said and done i think the only real compelling future feature that that really sets it apart from the pro uh, is the ssd architecture which will lead to absolutely massive improvements in load times which i think is a huge feature um but anyone that's ever used an ssd on the pc can attest that this is the, the, the difference is night and day from the traditional um, hard drives. So I think that's cool. But from a graphics perspective, I think even the, the two times GPO power of the Xbox One X is kind of like, you know, I don't know how easy it is to be able to discern, you know, from 1080p to 4K, you know, like, and, and, and these kind of jumps in power anymore. You know, I think the biggest jump we saw historically way back when was PS1 to PS2, when you went from 480, i to like 720p and that was a dramatic dramatic change and even from the ps2 to ps3 was kind of solid but it wasn't you know 720p they were upscaling to 900 and maybe some things were doing 1080i but very few things were actually doing 1080p and the difference was relatively minimal and then when you looked at, at xbox one uh, this cycle i don't think that it was really all that dramatic of a difference uh, visually um so i guess to me, the real question I have to answer to understand where our publishers are going to be in the next couple of years is we know that the next year, these things are going to sell off the shelves and they're going to, any unit they can get in the channel, they're going to sell. But the real question is how well they grow in year two, year three, year four versus the last cycle. It doesn't even matter at this point. We talked about this last time or a few other times, like these things are so freaking similar, right? In terms of uh, infrastructure, it's like you'd be able to play the same game on either console. So next year you can probably buy Call of Duty on one uh, you know, DVD and play it on both PS4 and PS5. So, um, so the question really is, is it really compelling enough to upgrade um, if the visual fidelity is not all that compelling relatively um, and, uh, and all you're really getting is faster load time. So, I don't know. That's kind of the question I need to figure out. I'm kind of, I'm definitely bullish on next-gen consoles. I just don't know if these consoles are going to sell as fast. That's kind of my only concern. What are you guys? Yeah, I don't know. Like it, going into the actual design of the Xbox, I'm not a huge fan of the tower. Um, just because it, I have no idea where it's going to fit in my TV stand. <laughs> uh, and one thing you did get wrong, um, PS2 was 40 480p so i think um when you were talking like ps2 to ps3 i think ps3 was 720 and ps4 was 1080p oh you're right sorry sorry yeah i totally messed that up i wrote it down wrong okay yeah that was the big jump though ps2 to ps3 xbox 360 to sorry yeah ps2 to xbox 360 slash ps3 got it yeah um but yeah i I don't know also a lot of this article focuses a lot on phil spencer talking like how he doesn't really want to sell a lot of consoles right but he doesn't really feel like the consoles are, are part of his business did, did you read that eric i didn't read that part <laughs> how did i miss that one yeah the 
the exact quote was the business isn't how many consoles you sell um, but yeah this one for me was a head scratcher and i used to buy all the consoles but i sat out the last xbox just because it didn't really feel that compelling and halo kind of lost it for me and um, i'm probably going to sit out this next one as well and it, it's like the danger here is that microsoft the more they make the xbox feel like a pc and the more they push xbox games everywhere through game pass or x cloud more people are just going to question why why do i even need an xbox if i you know have a pc or if i can get the games on something else and feeling i get i, I don't know if you guys agree is that microsoft's just kind of I don't know they're they're kind of losing the game here, and they're they're kind you know Sony's just going to win by default. <laughs> Hold on, okay, all right. I, I don't disagree with you on your sentiment on Microsoft. I think they need to show they know what they're doing, and they're coming out with compelling content that's unique. Like you know whether it's Minecraft, whether it's some other game that their other guys make that that make a, a compelling platform. Yeah, you, certainly the hardware design is not going to sell it, right? And and I've said a million times, and I still believe this is that Sony is going to totally win the first three years. There's no doubt. Like just the way the positioning is, uh, but it's whether how much investment and how much content they can come out with that'll compel a broader audience to come on board with the Xbox and the different business models that they're gonna be able to use and try to innovate on, unlike Sony, which is basically gonna sell a box and sell software, right? Which is what they do. So, um, so I'm, again, bullish on the overall console cycle. I just don't, my, my feeling is that we will not see as many hardware units sold as in the first three years as we did the last time. And that may be a problem to some degree. I think that's it. So uh, thanks again, Nebo, for jumping on. And yeah, that is a wrap for Twig 61. Catch y'all later. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, guys.